Happy, happy evening. Hope you've all had a very good evening. Thank you, Dave, for sharing with us and to be able to be so open and honest with us in what you shared with us. You know, many of us were blessed by growing up in a Christian home. I'm very grateful. I owe my parents an incalculable debt. But as some have put it very succinctly, God doesn't have grandchildren. You need to come to Christ and of yourself. Well, tonight, for those who haven't been here, I know some, some folks have joined us today and we're happy to see you. Um, my uh, assistant here, Sam, will come and bring you a handout if you put your hand up. Um, we have been looking at the major prophets, and we spent some time thinking about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and today we tried to put together some thoughts about the book of Daniel. Well, I know it sounds like a bit of a sad note, but with sadness comes joy. Tonight I want to talk to you about Lamentations. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Lamentations. If you have the handout, turn to the page uh, that is designated for Lamentations, which I've described as suffering the consequences of sin. And from the very start, I want you to, in your own mind, think, this is not homework, you're not going home with it. You're, you're going to be answering it as we go through. If someone came up to you in the street today and said, "My, you people at Yosemite, you sure talk a lot about this sin thing. What is this sin gig? What, what, what is sin really? It sounds like a pretty old-fashioned term. I know when I make, maybe make reference to it and talking to my colleagues or friends or neighbors, they sort of give you that... Did you just come from watching the Lawrence Welk show? Look, you, you know, for those of you, does anybody recognize my son Lawrence Welk? Guys, oh, I'm, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm getting older tomorrow, but, well, we're all getting older tomorrow. Um, but uh, as I'm getting older and older, and I, I try to make some jokes to the young people in the youth group, and, and, you know, you just see that go right over their heads, like 747, not a clue. Um, but, you know, you sometimes can use the word sin and people say that, that's kind of an archaic term. We'll come back to defining it. But because it's in our title, I want you to think about it. Suffering the consequences of sin. By the nature of the title, I'm going to strongly suggest, as Jeremiah did, both in his prophecy and here in the book of Lamentations. As sin is serious. I didn't create sin. I don't sin for you. You sin for you. It's your issue, not mine. But my Bible tells me unequivocally that every single one of us here are sinners. Even those beautiful, cute little chance grandchildren and the other children that we see walking around here. For anyone who's raised children, you know, you do not have to teach your children to sin, right? <laughs> they, they inherently know it, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But let's read a few verses together, not as many as are listed there. Uh, you know, I love reading God's Word. I think there's something special about publicly reading God's Word as well. You know, this was something that was done very much so. And I, and I, I hope that one of the sub-themes of what we've been doing here, if, if you leave this conference excited about reading the Word of God for yourself and reading it in books, as we've suggested. Last year, a number of you came afterwards and said, I'm going to commit myself to reading this book every day for the next 30 days. And many of you then, 30 days later, sent me a note saying you're doing it. And that was very encouraging. So I encourage you to think about that same notion. But let's read here in Lamentations, and we'll give some background in a moment. But let's just read from verse 1 of chapter 1. How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? 
Speaking, of course, of Jerusalem. How has she become as a widow, she that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces? How has she become tributary? She weepeth sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. Judah is gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude. She dwelleth among the heathen. She findeth no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. The ways of Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. Her adversaries are the chief. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord hath afflicted her. For the multitude of her transgressions or sins. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. And from the daughter of Zion all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like hearts that find no pasture. And they are gone without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the enemy, and none did help. The adversaries saw her and did mock at her Sabbath. Jerusalem, Jerusalem hath grievously sinned. Therefore, she is removed. All that honored her despise her, because they have seen her nakedness. Yea, she sigheth and turneth backward. Go over to chapter 2, please, and verse 10. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit upon the ground and keep silence. They have cast up dust upon their heads. They have girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem hang down their heads to the ground. Mine eyes do fail with tears. My bowels are troubled. My liver is poured upon the earth. I'd suggest most of you didn't wake up today and say, my liver is poured upon the earth. It's kind of an ancient expression, you know. I mean, how much do you really love your liver? Um... I mean, I don't keep a picture of Heather's liver next to my bedside. Um, I keep a picture of her face. But liver, the, 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 the author here is describing the depth of their sorrow from the midst of their body. For the destruction of her daughter and of my people, because the children and the suckling swoon in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is corn and wine? When they swooned as the wounded in the streets of the city, when their soul was poured out into their Muslim's, mother's bosom. What thing shall I take to witness for thee? What thing shall I liken to thee, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I equal to thee that I may comfort thee, O virgin daughter of Zion? For thy breach is great like the sea. Who can heal thee? Down to verse uh, 22. Uh, sorry, over to chapter 3, verse 22. It is... Of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. And here's a phrase that you quite likely know. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. He sitteth alone and keepeth silence because he hath borne it upon him. He putteth his mouth in the dust, if so be there may be hope. He giveth his cheek to him that smiteth him. He is filled with reproach, for the Lord will not cast off 
forever. There's an end to this suffering is what the author is telling us here. Um, But though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he doth not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. Go over to verse 55 of the same chapter. I called upon thy name, O Lord, out of the low dungeon. Thou hast heard my voice. Hide not thine ear at my breathing, at my cry. Thou drewest near in the day that I called upon thee. Thou saidst, Fear not, O Lord. Thou hast pleaded the causes of my soul. Thou hast redeemed my life. O Lord, thou hast seen my wrong. Judge thou my cause. Chapter 4, please. Verse 13. For the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests that have shed blood, the blood of the just in the midst of her, they have wandered as blind men in the streets. They have polluted themselves with blood so that men could not touch their garments. They cried unto them, Depart ye, it is unclean. Depart, depart, touch not. When they fled away and wandered, they said among the heathen, They shall no more sojourn there. The anger of the Lord hath divided them. He will no more regard them. They respected not the persons of the priests. They favored not the elders. And finally, in the last chapter, chapter 5, verse 15, please. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe unto us that we have sinned. For this our heart is faint. For these things our eyes are dim. Because the mountains of Zion, which is desolate, the foxes walk upon it. Thou, O Lord, remainest forever, thy throne from generation to generation. Wherefore, dost thou forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Turn thou unto us, O Lord, that we may be turned. Renew our days of old. But thou hast utterly rejected us. Thou art very wroth, a wrath against us. And please go back to chapter 1 for one more verse that I purposely left to read one more time, read at the very end. Perhaps the best-known verse in the, in the book of Lamentations, apart from great is thy faithfulness, or thy new mercies are new every morning. Verse 12 of chapter 1. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which the Lord has done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. You might say to me, uh, Dr. Joe, dude, why are you taking up such a sad story on a night like this? Well, it's a sad story, but it's also a happy story. But sad for good cause. You know, there is a time, of course, as Scripture tells us, a time to be sad, a time for joy. But one of the things that I love most about the Word of God is that it's honest you know, sometimes I'm not much of a movie goer, mostly for time's sake. But, you know, sometimes you get these these feel good movies and everything works out well in the end and everybody's just so happy. And it's sort of all orchestrated. And we have sometimes this Hollywood view of how everybody lives their lives. You know what Ken was describing the other day, what you see on most people's Facebook pages, you know, all these happy selfies in front of the Eiffel Tower. You know. And uh, one of the things that distinguishes absolutely the word of God from other so-called religious writings that seek to potentially draw people to God in their definition, is God's honesty. You know, at the end of the day, 
It's not what we really want. Honesty. The truth. The truth about you. The truth about me. The truth about this gorgeous planet that we live on. God is honest. And for those who were here the other day, you know we were talking about Jeremiah as a prophet who lived at a very critical point in the history of the Jewish nation. Even if you know no Israeli history, know this, that this was a people that God had placed a special hand upon them. Not because he didn't love the other nations. Don't, don't think for a minute that God wanted to just show his love to a little group of people and hate everybody else. It's dangerous in that kind of thinking to think of God that way. My Bible tells me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loves us all. But God was trying to use this one nation as an example to the world of his character, of his person. There are some marvelous nations around the world over history. But if you were to predict back in that day, what nation would still have the strength that it does today, you would think of Babylon or Medo-Persia or Greece or Rome. Who would have thought that a group of wandering shepherds would be the nation that they are today? There are Jewish people in every country on this planet. The richest people, the poorest people. They are a microcosm of the planet, of the human race in many respects. Much like the land of Israel, even geographically, is a little microcosm of the whole planet. You can water ski in the morning and snow ski in the afternoon. It's not a coincidence, their location. The Lord wanted to use them, if you will, as a missionary to the planet. Sadly, in many respects, that missionary failed, and the Lord raised up another missionary out of the Gentiles, the church. Scripture reminds us, don't get too high-minded, you Gentiles. We got grafted in later. But here, the Jewish nation had been under privilege of the Lord, as we'll come to our, one of our major lessons later. With privilege comes responsibility. They had, had been given wonderful opportunities and wonderful examples. They could go back in history and look at literal miracles, water being held back, being fed in the wilderness, their enemies being destroyed by trumpets. But sadly, sometimes those of us who know better do the very wrong things. And God had warned them. He said, you know, you're my people. I'll love you and I'll support you. But if you continue to reject me, continue to reject me, there is going to be a consequence. There is going to be a consequence. We talked the other day about parents who tell their children, look, if you keep doing this, Billy, you keep doing this, Susie, there's going to be a consequence. God is true to his word. And he had warned them that if this would happen, although it hurt him to do it, He would let other nations come in and discipline them, as it were. Other nations come in and take them away in captivity. And it happened in the uh, northern tribes that formed Israel, and it's happening here to the southern tribes that formed Judah. And Babylon, literally, under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, were taken away. Their city of Jerusalem was destroyed, and they were taken away into captivity. So this little book is unique in the canon of Scripture. Five chapters, which really form five poems of sadness. You know, we mourn and we hurt when we lose people. 
Scripture tells us we sorrow not like the world sorrows in one respect because we have a hope and a future. But boy, it hurts, isn't it, when you lose loved ones? I, not jokingly, but I will sometimes say I think almost genetically, uh, as my parents having come from Egypt, uh, that I have a genetic predisposition to mourning. You know, the ancient Egyptians invented mourning. Their mummification process took about 70 days out in the wilderness, in, in the desert, to dry the body. And in those 70 days, they exhibited extreme sadness. And of course, a lot of it had to do with they didn't really have much hope of the afterworld. I mean, they buried people with things, and sometimes they buried people with people to take care of them in the afterlife. They're so afraid of what might happen after they die. A fear of death motivates people to do some very unusual things. And some of this, of course, is cultural, and I'm not blaming anyone on, uh, on, on culture and how culture do things. But, you know, the ancient world really had a thing for mourning, as did the Israeli nation. And sadly, over the history of this planet, the Israeli nation has had many occasions, sadly, to mourn. And this is one of those key times in a Holocaust-like setting where millions of them if not at least thousands of them were killed. Many others called off into exile. Others had their homes taken from them and their family taken from them. And so these five poems were created. I won't get into too much of the detail with you, but we have five poems here for each of the five chapters. The first four chapters are special in that they form basically an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. So that every verse for chapter 1, 2, and 4 start with a letter from the Hebrew alphabet. And chapter 3, which you might notice is longer than the others, it's 66 verses. All the other chapters have 22 verses. That, uh, that acrostic holds for every third verse. And the fifth chapter also has 22 verses, or 22 sections, if you will, uh, of each uh, um, uh, uh, representing the number in the uh, Hebrew alphabet, but not in the order that we see in chapters 1 through 4. This was like, quite likely to facilitate memorization and was to reflect the uh, in, inherent nature of the Hebrew people that their language was very much a part of themselves. I distinctly remember a high school history teacher of ours who said, you cannot understand an ancient people unless you understand their language. And so as he taught us ancient Egypt, we all had to learn the letters of the hieroglyphic alphabet. So it'd be kind of fun sometimes around school when people would write graffiti in hieroglyphs and only the people in our class knew what they were writing. Like, you really shouldn't say that about the headmaster. You better erase that, you know. Um, but he was he and, and it stuck in my mind. This is someone who, who didn't uh, believe in the things of God, per se, but he 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 helped us appreciate that. And the Hebrew language, again, we could go on and on about this all day long. But the Hebrew language is a very beautiful language in many respects. You know, you and I think we're, we're marvelous because we can rhyme words together because we can end two word We can put two words together that end in the same uh, sounding words. You know, it was a dark and stormy night and my heart was filled with fright. Wow, I'm really good, aren't I? But the the Hebrew language was designed as a very pictorial like language, literally to rhyme ideas where you'd put two phrases back to back that were not paired just because they happen to sound the same, but because they say the same. Do you ever notice that when you read the book of Psalms? 
How many times you read a psalm and the first half of the verse sounds a bit like the second half of the verse? And you think, is, is the psalmist part of the Department of Redundancy Department? You know, are they, they, they repeating things too often? No, because they're rhyming ideas together. It's no wonder that the Old Testament, almost exclusively, we, there was some Aramaic in uh, Daniel, but it, almost exclusively the Old Testament is written in Hebrew because it's God's picture book. That's quite interesting that soon after the writing of the Old Testament, that Hebrew language died. Much like the New Testament, by the way, for the students here tonight. I could make, a fair, I think, a pretty cogent argument that the Greek language was perhaps the most precise language ever defined. I mean, in English, we say the boy, the girl, the chair. We wouldn't do that in, in the Greek language. You have a definite article that's masculine, that's feminine, that's neuter. And it's a different if the boy is the subject of the sentence or is the object of the sentence. And there's really 30 different ways to exhibit the definite article in Greek. And the Lord comes to describe the character and person of the Lord Jesus and the details of the gospel. He uses the most precise language that this world has ever known. And go figure, not long after the completion of the Old Testament, that version of Greek essentially died. Because languages change. God wanted to help us see these words and understand these words in their original languages that don't change. English changes a lot. The word gay today means something very different than it did even 40 years ago. But these languages have been arrested in time to preserve that. God is really interested in speaking to us. You know that. And so these beautiful poems, albeit tremendously sad, exhibit the sorrow. No wonder they're called lamentations. In fact, the, historically the Jewish nation would look at these, look at this book and in, in our uh, translation, um, the four out of the five chapters start with the word how, but it literally means alas. And it was known as the alas book. This is the book of sadness, the book indeed of lamentations. And we, although it's not explicitly stated here, it seems quite clear that, that Jeremiah, especially considering the timing, was indeed the author. And when we think of his suffering or, or what's described here, we see, of course, that um, uh, uh, there's the sorrow that Jeremiah is expressing, if you will, on the behalf of the people. But I've listed here as key themes in your handout the three versions, if you will, of that sorrow, or if we could call the applications of that sorrow. This is one of the beautiful things of Scripture. You know, someone has said there's one inter- interpretation, multiple applications, and I think we have to be careful how, how we define those words. But nonetheless, in general, we find how beautifully the Lord shows us a key lesson out of a, out of a text or a key message, what was happening right there and then. But of course, We know that's a picture of things to come. And the Lord used this very often in his life. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So there was a serpent lifted up in the wilderness to help them deal with the fiery serpents as they were described. As as we get to use them in Arizona, we see lots of fiery serpents, uh, venomous snakes, and they were dying because of it. And what a beautiful picture of the cross. I remember distinctly in medical school, explaining that to the head of the history of medicine. It was a little awkward when I said, Sir, what was the original symbol of Asclepius, the Greek god of health that was 
pictured with holding a staff and sometimes with a serpent over top. He said, well, that started in ancient Greece. I said, well, it's actually probably about 1,200 years earlier than the symbol of Moses in the wilderness when he put up a, a, a stake in the ground and put a serpent on it. And people looked to it to be healed of, their, of the venomous snakes that they had been bitten by. And so God uses this beautiful, if you will, application of that event. And so we see events that occurred then speak to us. Absolutely. There was a Jerusalem that was destroyed. There was a group of people that were carried in exile. But that sorrow reflects other things. So number one, of course, it's the sorrow of this Jewish remnant who witnessed the Babylonian invasion. It's tragic to see their brothers and sisters carted off to see this beautiful city, thriving city, now devastated. And by application for you and I, when was the last time you were moved? I asked this question the other day, that you were moved to tears, whether it was physical tears or not, but had that genuine sorrow for the people of God. We liken Jeremiah's sorrow for God's people to that of the Lord Jesus when he wept over the city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered you to get together as a hen doth gather chicks, but ye would not. wasn't because he didn't want to gather them. It was their choice. It was their prerogative. You know, it's like when you gather up your children, you want them to hug them. Thankfully, my, close your ears, Alyssa. My girls are still at the age where they think I'm cool. All right. They still want to hug me in public. I know my time is limited, right? So I'm going to milk it for every second I got. Uh, but, you can't force that kind of love. Genuine love that way can't be forced. And I'm thankful that God doesn't do that. God doesn't come to you and say, you're going to love me and you're going to like it. Right? I mean, is that how I proposed to Heather? Not going to happen, right? We wouldn't have been married for these 20 years if it weren't for the fact that we genuinely love each other. And when we see how the Lord longed to gather up his people, do we have that same love for the Lord's people? We were commenting at dinner today. We had such a great meal. That's why I run in the mornings, by the way, is because you keep feeding me. Like, we finished one meal. I'm like, all right, girls, we've got two hours and 25 minutes till the next one. Let's walk around all of Curry Village 20 times. And um, we were chatting about how, and I'm not trying to butter you up either here, and I know you've been doing this conference for 70 years, and many of you have known each other, but I just love when I come to a conference like this that has so many different assemblies and places represented, and there's a beautiful unity here. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, there are thousands of conventions going on this week, right? Everything from people who like the color purple to people who like uh, toy airplanes to people who... I don't know, get tattoos or whatever people go to conferences for. But what binds us together uniquely is the person of the Lord Jesus. There's nothing like it. I said earlier to our host this evening, you know, when you meet other believers, I mean, you, you know you're instantly family, but there's some people, it just feels instantly that you have that bond. We share that in the Lord Jesus. Do you have that love and compassion when the people of God suffer? It hurts, doesn't it? When you see uh, people suffer in that kind of capacity. Secondly, we can think of the anguish of the Messiah. 
Although spoken of the city of Jerusalem, that's why I went back to read that verse in chapter 1, which is one of my favorite verses of the whole book, uh, where, where we read, uh, Behold, Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. That could, yes, indeed was said of the city of Jerusalem, but could be said of the Lord Jesus, couldn't it? My Bible says that the Lord Jesus is described as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. There's another, if you want more homework, there's always lots of it. I'm sure Ken will give you more too, but you want to study sorrow, just the word. I did a series once. I can't remember if I shared it with some of you at Claremont or in some of the assemblies represented here. But I, I did a, a study once on things God knows. Now, that could be a really quick study, right? He knows everything and we're done, right? You know, um, But things where the scripture explicitly says, I know. And when the Jewish people were in captivity in Egypt, he says, I know their sorrow. Now, what does it mean when God knows my sorrow? Does it mean that because he's God and he knows everything and he's got that, if you will, supercomputer of a brain, that he knows every fact and detail? He knows exactly the numbers of hairs on your head, some of you more than others, but um, he knows that level of detail. Is that what he means? Well, yes, in one sense, that's true. But let me tell you, if I can put it this way, that the Lord Jesus is an expert in sorrow. Because he's the man of sorrows. He suffered in a way that most of us cannot even conceive of. That's why the scripture tells us that we don't have someone who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We don't have some distant, cold God. I'm very careful what I say about other faiths and other religions, but my Bible tells me clearly Jesus is the way. I am the way, the truth, and life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Yet I was in Indonesia not long ago speaking at, at a medical conference, and they said, you know, Dr. McHale, we, we absolutely, it was even in their welcome letter to me, we insist that you stay one extra day. We know you're the fly to Asia, give a talk, fly back the next day kind of guy, uh, but we want you to stay one extra day. You really must come with us to the Borobudur Temple. It's about an hour and a half drive outside of Yogyakarta. It is the, the largest Buddhist temple in the world, one of the largest temples uh, in the world. It's been used as, it's out in the, kind of in a jungle, so it's been used in movie sets and so on. You really have to see this. And I said, well, okay, I'll see it. And you have to see it at sunrise. All right, fine. I'll get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. No, and someone asked me to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning to get housekeeping units. I, I mean, to go see a, a Buddhist temple. I'm happy to do it. So we got up in the morning, and to me it was such a paradox. It was absolutely gorgeous, because we're out in the uh, open, as a beautiful opening in the midst of this almost jungle-like uh, 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 suburbia. And the sun rises and you see it come over the top of this temple that we climbed to the top of it. And in one way I thought, what a gorgeous sunrise over it. Another way it struck me, I'm surrounded by over 400 Buddhas. And although the shape of it might look unique and special, I thought, they can't hear me. I want a God who knows my sorrow, not a artificial 
philosophy of thinking that might try and lead people down a path of hopelessness. I want a real God. I want a man who stands for me. And let me tell you today, maybe no one else here, as we said yesterday, can't, maybe no one else can really understand your sorrow. He knows it like no one else. Is it nothing to you all that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. And then, of course, there's a prophetic aspect of this as well, which is the sorrow of the Jewish remnant in the future, in the time of, of, if you will, Jacob's trouble. And we haven't a lot of time to get into that tonight. But sadly, this motif of suffering because of sin is not over yet. And will be faced again. And it hurts the heart of God. For those of you who are parents here tonight, who have seen suffering in your children, it's a painful thing, isn't it? As many of you know, I work in oncology and I take care of some pretty awful cancers. It's awful no matter how old you are. But when I look into the eyes of the parents of a child that has cancer, there are times when you're speechless. And not to be morbid about it, but let me ask you, what are you going to say? Just before we started the evening, I slipped away to take a call from a family of a patient of mine who died yesterday. What are you going to say at the bedside? What do you tell the family of the 28-year-old with leukemia who won't make it to August? And honestly, what will you tell them? What insight will you have? Are you going to bring them a Buddhist statement? Are you going to tell them everything's going to be okay? We all just want to hold hands and sing Kumbaya and all's good? Do you have a solution for that? My Bible says the Lord Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. This isn't some cheesy hope that maybe someday I'll live. I know unequivocally that I belong to the Lord Jesus and that he has conquered death, hell, and the grave. This is not an emotional crutch to carry me through life. This is the real hope that comes from a real Savior who died for me. So one has said it's one thing for someone to die for their religion and die for their God. It's the one thing when their God dies for them. The Lord Jesus died for me. He died for you tonight. Do you know that? Do you know that personal relationship with him? It's not about a church. It's not about a gathering. It's not about a group of people. I mean, look, I love you all, but thank God it's not about you. It's about him, isn't it? So let's uh, close off by looking at these major lessons that we've seen already. Number one, the consequences of sin are severe. Now, do you have your definition of sin yet? I asked you at the start of the meeting. Sometimes we talk about sin and people think about you know, horrible things, axe murderers and people that belong in prison and so on. Well, of course, the scripture has multiple definitions of sin. I try to think about three simple Hebrew words that define sin. I'm not going to give you a big lesson tonight. But one of them um, is this idea of falling short of a standard. That there's a standard, there's a line there, there's a basketball net, 
and the ball's supposed to go into the net. And what happens when you go to, I don't know, a Lakers or Warriors game, whoever you're fans of here, and the ball the ball falls short, and everyone goes, er, ball, right? and, and falls short. Like, thanks for coming out. Um, actually, yeah, the net's a bit higher than that, right? That we fall short. I'll be the first one to admit that Joe McHale is really good at falling short. God sets a standard. By contrast, there's a line, similarly on the same concept of a line. All of these three concepts, I think, can be helped defined by a single line. So here's a line you're supposed to reach and you fall short of it. Well, here's, uh, by contrast, a line that you're not supposed to cross and you do cross. Some speaker this week won't mention by name, Ken Daughters, that was explained to us that, you know, uh, we shouldn't be saying to ourselves, how fast can I go above the speed limit before the, uh, the highway patrol catches me, right? There's a line that says you're not to exceed 60 miles an hour. But we're really good at pushing that limit, right? We cross the line, cross the line, cross the line. I'll also admit Joe McHale's really good at crossing a line he's not supposed to. The third concept that perhaps we can relate to even most, um, that second one is, is often uh, described as transgression. The third one, often defined iniquity. There's a line there that you're not supposed to cross. But basically, this is what you're doing. You're not just crossing over it. You're like crossing it back and forth and back and forth. You're, 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 you're doing whatever you want to do. I do what I want to do when I want to do it. I don't care about God's standard. I'll trample all over it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've gone every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That notion of saying, I don't care about God's standard. I answer to me. Thank you very much. I don't know about you, but if you're honest with me tonight, I bet you can relate to that. Because we're built that way, aren't we? Our greatest enemy is ourselves in many respects. So we say if Satan, he had that eye problem, right? Not that he needed an ophthalmologist, but I will ascend to heaven. I will be like the most high. That's in our nature to want us to put me at the top. Ken so beautifully described this week the selfishness that pervades our society and our humanity. And those sins come at a price. They come at consequence. God says there's going to be a punishment for it. We would all be up in arms if you knew that there was crimes being committed in your community and the police said, ah, that's okay. No big deal. Murder? Ah, not a big deal. That's fine. We want justice. God is a just God and he's going to deal with it. And these, the Jewish nation had been warned over and over again. If they continue in their sins, they would, they would face the consequence. With privilege comes responsibility. And this was specific, specific to the Jewish nation, but also an important principle for us today, isn't it? This is one of the reasons why I used to struggle a little bit. Why would the Lord in his lifetime tell people, don't go and tell people what I just did? Or why would he sometimes speak in parables? Why wouldn't he just say certain things outrightly? Why would he, would he sort of diminish his presence amongst people? God was being gracious. Because the more light shed to them, the more responsible they be with it. And you know what it's like when you first wake up in the morning, if a big bright light gets turned on, you can't see it. It just makes you put your head down because you can't handle all that light. God was gracious by giving them little bits of light, just a little bit. You just take this. Okay, you don't want to believe what I say. Just believe what I've done. Just, just believe the fact that this blind man can now see. 
Can we all agree that's a good thing? That's your lesson for today. And he would gently and slowly but deliberately gain their trust. I said it yesterday. Faith in the Lord Jesus is not some blind, I'll believe everything I want to believe faith. It's coming to trust that God is trustworthy. But you have to see that for yourself. You can't trust God because I trust God. Number three, admission of guilt is required. Sometimes we we shy away from words like repentance, but my Bible says unequivocally, I have to repent. What is repent? Repent literally means to agree with God with what his pronouncement is. To, To mentally assent to the fact that I take ownership of my sin. I have to recognize that I'm the problem. That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he didn't just die generically for the sins of the world. He died for the sins of Joe McHale. I can't remain in that sinful state. I can't, in my own capacity, fix my own problem. Number four, God knows suffering. We've discussed this already. He knows. He knows the suffering. And thank God he not only knows, but he cares. And it may not have seemed to the Jewish people at the time, but God did remain in control. There are times when we think, how is this possible? How can God leave us? And there are some phrases and words that we read here. It almost sound like God has entirely abandoned us. But do you notice I, I brought in those pieces of hope? Great is thy faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. His suffering, his, his judgment will be not forever, but for a time. And God has a beautiful plan involved. Suffering is not equal. Many of you in this room in this, this area tonight, understand that, don't you? Life isn't fair. Some people suffer much greater than others for reasons that we frankly cannot understand. And we need to be careful sometimes when people think, oh, God's going to get me for that one. Ken described that nicely the other day. You know, the Lord, we don't live in that kind of dispensation anymore where, you know, God's going to get me for that one. Look, if God got us for that one, we wouldn't be here. Right? <laughs> We don't deserve to be here. But that suffering isn't always equal. And it's not fair to look at the brother and the sister sitting next to you and say, well, it's not fair that they don't have chronic pain like I have and they don't have this challenge that I have and they haven't gone through what I have gone through. Just know that he knows and he cares. And lastly, God has a long-term plan. We haven't been taking time to go through a lot of the outlines of the books. I put them at the bottom of each of the handouts. But there is a future here. We saw at the end that their son would rise again. We saw, of course, in, in studying Daniel today, Daniel pulled out the book and said, hey, wait a minute, Jeremiah told us that the, the suffering would come to an end, that, that the exile would come to an end after 70 years. God had a plan. So as I close, let me ask you, what's your future like? What do you know unequivocally about your future? My Bible tells me that I can know that I have eternal life. Not that I might make it into the top rung. I I just may get there. I hope and hope. It's not based on someone splashing water on me when I was an infant. It's not based on what my parents did or thought. It's not even based on where I go to who, who I sit with at church. My future is secure because of my repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. And if that's your experience tonight, oh, 
Will you let your heart beat faster with it? Just enjoy it. If you're here tonight and you don't have that peace, you don't have that comfort, please talk to one of us. Make it right. We live in a day of God's grace, as we were discussing this morning. There is that period of time where God is waiting, 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 waiting. But a day will come when that waiting will stop. And the day of vengeance of our God, as we read it, will be invoked. Let's pray. Father, we are very thankful to be here tonight. We are so blessed, always blessed, to just be around other Christians. It just lifts up our hearts by that virtue. And Father, despite the sadness and the tragedy in many respects of the book of Lamentations and what happened to the Jewish nation, help us to learn from it. Well, Father, we are humbled at the sorrow of the Lord Jesus and how he suffered, not because of his own sin, but because of mine. Help us see that. Help us understand it more. Help us love him more. Father, if there's someone here tonight who hasn't had that clarity of thought to come to Christ, we pray it be so tonight. Stir their hearts. For those of us that know him, cause us to enjoy him all the more, we pray. Bless us, give us all a good night, and bring us back in safety tomorrow for not already home and glory with thee, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.